0: The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves,
1: the industry, and their work, brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association.
0: Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy. This episode features Mike Nicholson, the Chief People Officer at Precision Biosciences in Durham, North Carolina. I was actually down in Mike's office at an old tobacco building that was totally renovated. You know, with the exposed beam and different facets of tobacco manufacturing were very present. And some of the relics left over from that are part of the renovation work they've done. Very creative and warm space that they have in that building. Mike has one of the most unique career paths to becoming a CPO of all of our guests so far you'll really enjoy his personal career journey and his fresh approach to the function. They're on a fast growth mode right now, growing to hundreds of people after many years of being a smaller biotech and a lot of connections to the the Boston biotech community that we've featured on the Hennessy Report as well. But Mike also shares the excitement of what's going on down in Durham and RTP with regard to life sciences and technology and it's exciting to hear his perspective and what's going on in that market as well. Coming up on the podcast, we have Melanie Foley, the Chief Talent Officer at Liberty Mutual Insurance. I told you about her coming up soon already. And also we have the President, Gina Pierre, of the New England chapter of the National Association of African Americans and Human Resources, NAAA HR, and also... Another podcast that's upcoming is Tiffany Mosier, the Chief People Officer at DataZoo. And now I bring in my discussion with Mike Nicholson. Hello, Mike. Good to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Here we are in Raleigh, North Carolina. A lot of overlap between Boston and Raleigh. In fact, you were just in Boston a few months ago for the, the LEAP HR conference where you met some of our colleagues and our former podcast guests. Like That's Andy, right. Andy Porter, uh, Stephanie Franklin at Vertex, uh, Ginger Gregory at Biogen. A lot of connection between Boston and Raleigh, a lot of overlap between industries and companies like Fidelity at Biogen and the biotech community, which is so robust in both cities, as well as the higher ed, the rich higher ed environment. So great to be down here and working with you. And before we start, maybe we can talk a little bit about your background and Maybe something early in your life that kind of led you to where you are today in some way. Sure. So my, my background
1: is not typical of what you would expect from somebody heading up HR. My career actually started in music. Growing up, I always wanted to be a musician. That was all I ever planned on doing. And actually went to school part-time initially to be a musician and had the opportunity to drop out and go on the road instead, uh, which I did for a few years. In retrospect, I actually think that's where my my interest in, in human relations really came about, because I, I had to get along with these crazy musicians I was traveling with uh, and, and the crowds we were dealing with and the, um, you know, the club owners that we were desperately trying to get us to pay. Um, that is a hard game to play, though. So after a few years of that, I, I realized that there was a, a better future for me that would perhaps require some more schooling. So I went uh, back to college this time for chemistry then ended up getting a PhD in molecular biology and genetics. And then, obviously, became a head of HR a decade or so <laughs> later. After that. how
0: the heck does that happen? How do you go from music to science PhD and end up in the head of human resources chair? <laughs> this is uh, this is a unique path, by the way. Before we do that, what musical instrument were you playing? What was uh, guitar. The you were guitar. Okay, I'm guitar player. Yeah, it's great. So, so I, I have found, and, and maybe you've
1: heard this from other people on your podcast, that there's actually a lot of musicians in science, and there's tremendous overlap, I, I think, between. Uh, sciences and math and music, hmm. um, and and I and I do think they both activate parts of your brain similarly, or at least complementary. I always viewed science as an as an inherently creative uh, activity, just like music. And you know, as we as we think about music composition or music improvisation, it's very much about problem solving. It's very much I'm I'm on this chord now. I'm trying to get to this chord in the next bar. What's a fun way to get there? Uh-huh. And I think. The really great scientists out there, uh, and I'm not putting myself in that category, <laughs> but but uh, I, I certainly tried my best. View uh, experiments are the same way: as we know where we are, we know what we're trying to figure out. What's a creative way to get that answer and solve that problem? Mm. Um, moving from from the lab bench into human resources, I think is is very much the same question: is we know where we are, we have a goal we're trying to accomplish. What's an interesting way we can create that? What are the tools we have? To, uh, to potentially answer that question.
0: Was there something that you were doing as a scientist here that helped people see that maybe you should lead this function? What, how, how was that? Was that a natural step? Can you just talk through how that came about?
1: Uh, sure. And, and I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I'm I'm not a founder of the company, but I'm the first full-time employee they had that wasn't a founder. So um, Almost a founder. Almost, <laughs> yes. I, I started seven months after the founders did. So, you know, after 12 years, it's really a matter of semantics at this point. Uh, semantics and equity in the company. <laughs> um, at any rate, so I've, I've been here for about 12 years now. Mm. And the company was very small for our first nine years. Uh, The the number that stands out to me in May of 2015, we had 15 employees. That date stands out because that was when we started hiring after our series A, just about a month or so earlier. So to to connect those lines, that also tells you that for nine years, we didn't have venture capital backing. Uh, We were self-funded. We had enough research deals with other partners that we were were getting by, Mm. but we certainly didn't have the resources to grow the team. So when we did do a Series A investment and had a, a large, large influx of cash, we knew where we were going and it was time to start hiring people. So I think partially because of, of my time at that point had been nine years in the company, I wanted to be very active in, in how we grew. And so, in fact, I ended up hiring. Why, Why did you want to be so active? in Because I, I saw the, the great team that we had assembled. I mean, it was a small team, but it was incredibly functional. Um, it was a very close team. We mm-hmm. got an enormous amount of work done, mm-hmm. enormous quality of work done, given the circumstances. Again, you know, not not exactly rolling in cash. Right. We had to. You, you, had, had, to to kind of you had to be efficient. You had to be We had to be efficient. We had to work well together. Right. We had to, you know, politics. We were too small to have politics be involved. Right. And and frankly, maybe it was selfish. I, I didn't want to mess that up ah. by just starting to hire people willy nilly. Right. So we we didn't have a an internal HR team. We were outsourcing all HR at the time. So we didn't have a recruiter or even a you know manager of HR to start recruiting. So I, I kind of took it upon myself to start recruiting people um, and ended up hiring, I think, the first 15 or 20 people in, in our initial growth. So really the first doubling in the company uh, were mostly people that I hired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it because, you know, it was great to to again, maybe selfishly, to right. identify areas that, that I saw. I, I couldn't bring to the company, but I knew we needed some great immunologists. Right. Um, so if I could find a great immunologist, it was great to bring them on board and make sure that they understood why they were coming in. You didn't want to mess this thing up. That's why you got <laughs> exactly. involved. You're like, let's keep exactly. this thing great. <laughs> exactly. Now, whether I was qualified or not to, to do that, but you know. jumped. you jumped in. But I, and but said, I jumped
0: let's, in. Let's do this thing. That's great. Yeah. So, you're, yeah, you've jumped in. You're doing a lot of HR things, bringing on talent. How did you become now the head of HR? Was that another couple of years later, or did it come quickly after this growth, that growth spurt you're talking about now? Uh,
1: It was gradual. In in fact, uh, I I had two positions that were, in a lot of ways, looking back, kind of HR heavy. Uh, The first one was something we called uh, Director of Scientific Operations. At that point, I was an interim leader of one of the research groups. We were hiring; I was hiring uh, someone to take over full time. I was I was leading that group in the interim, but in the rest of my time, I was facilitating interactions between the groups. I was, you know, kind of the the, the liaison between the various research groups and development groups to make sure that that we were all well aligned with the company strategy, uh, the scientific strategy, and, and and our growth strategy. At the time, I didn't recognize it, but a lot of what I was doing was, in fact.
0: HR. So you have two examples that you've just jumped in and did yes. that were HR things that you weren't calling HR at the time. <laughs> uh, right. Well, because I'm a scientist. Right. Okay, I wouldn't possibly do HR. Um,
1: and, and then after that, I ended up being vice president of uh, research and development and, and once again found myself, I, I was either interim leading a group, or I didn't have a, a group overall, but but was leading the company from a, a higher perspective and really working with the CSO to make sure that his vision was integrated, which again involved a lot of Working with each team's needs, trying to figure out you know if, if they were properly resourced, mm-hmm. if we had redundancies, overlapping functions, and if so, how can we smooth those out? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was moving people or moving functions. Right. So again, force planning, all the yeah, well, exactly. Right. You get it. So um, so so when we finally reached a point as a company that we saw our trajectory, and I think we were around 100 people and maybe maybe a little bit less. We recognized all right. Over the next three to five years, we're going to continue to grow at this rate and. You know, right now, I think we had, or at that point, we had a handle on it, but we really thought, okay, now's the time to really bring somebody in and own this. And we got to talking about what that person would look like, and a lot of the characteristics we came up with were somebody that really got the science and understood the scientists and could speak that language uh, and and, and could really be an an integrated part of the business and not a bolt-on function. Mm -hmm. And at some point, someone said, well, I think that's you. (laughs) Um, and of course, my my scientist hat. I said, "But but I'm a scientist." Uh, and, and in fact, over about uh, a two month period of, of really thinking about it, uh, talking to any HR professional that that would listen to me, um, you know, to have me call it the blue and say, "Hey, you don't know me, but I'm thinking about this job. What do you think?" Yeah, uh, it it became clear that yeah, that's where my interests were. That's what I was doing, and so yeah. I uh, threw you said my, yes. my head in, and, and,
0: and here I am. Yeah, what a great story about how to. How somebody came into this role. That's awesome. You know, I know all about genome editing and editing DNA, but maybe some of our listeners don't know. Maybe you can put it in layman's terms exactly what you do here at Precision Biosciences. So 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 others can understand, not me.
1: So others probably know about it more than they think. If they've seen the recent movie Rampage...
0: I haven't seen that yet. Uh, it's, but.
1: It's, uh, it's something. Okay. All, all kidding aside. Uh, so gene editing is, in, in our world, it's a very old field. But I would say in in the world, it seems to be a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, at, at this point, a lot of people have probably heard of CRISPR. In fact, sure. it was in the news a few months ago. Uh, there was a, an experiment in China that involved uh, using oh, CRISPR yes. on, uh, on, on on babies. Yeah. On news this week. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Still in the news. Mm. Conceptually, we do something very similar, not editing babies, but the the general approach of editing DNA. So we have a tool that we can use to change the code uh, of of DNA in any organism. So we can modify it to either uh, turn on certain functions or turn off certain functions or change the way the DNA actually encodes the information. So as we think about genetic diseases that are caused by one gene that maybe has one or two defects in it, that, that results in a, in a genetic disease. We can potentially use our tool to go in and modify that DNA to correct that uh, and restore normal function. And what is the
0: tool? Is it an injection type tool? That it's an organism itself. How does it? How does it? What's the tool look like? What it's is it? a, it's a molecule. It's a okay. single molecule. It's a, it's a protein. It's a protein. So you've yep. uh, uh, certainly heard of proteins before. It is
1: a uh, single protein that we engineer that we can change the way it interacts with DNA mm-hmm. so that we can target it to any specific gene we feel like modifying. Mm. So in the case of a genetic disease, if we know exactly the gene that is involved with uh, with this disease, we can target this molecular tool right to that spot to make the, the edit that we want to get the desired outcome.
0: Out of the certain uh, diseases, the therapies that you're close to, getting some traction on? Uh, Where's the most exciting things for the work that you're doing? Exciting Um, potential, I should say.
1: Yeah, great question. So we we work in three main verticals. From the precision biosciences standpoint, we are mostly focused on gene therapy and cell therapy. Cell therapy is most advanced right now for us, and, and this is where instead of focusing specifically on one gene, we're engineering immune cells to be better cancer killers. In fact, we had our very first IMD approved in late 2018. This is uh, approval from the FDA to start a clinical trial, and we are making the material for that right now in hopes to be treating patients uh, sometime later this quarter.
0: Mm, that's exciting. Congratulations. And you're in another growth phase, it sounds like. You mentioned to me before we sat down to speak that uh, you expect to be a much larger company. You're in another inflection an point here for the organization. Yes, we are. What's driving that? I imagine some of the things you just said, but uh, what's happening with your growth internally? Uh,
1: that's right. A lot of it is to support the the cell therapy work, um, this this immune cell programming to, to fight cancers. Um, it, it takes an enormous team to, to make that material, to qualify it, to determine whether or not it's good enough for a clinical trial. And it takes an enormous team to figure out what to do with the results and how to act from there. Um, one thing we are also doing right now is we are bringing in manufacturing in-house um, for this this first trial. We have a, a, a contract partner that's mm-hmm. doing most of the manufacturing. There's um, a lot of those around here, right? Uh, there are the, the one we're working with <laughs> happens to be in Tennessee. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, that's because we you know want to go visit Graceland every once in a while. So uh, they're they're in Memphis. Yeah. Um, but but as as we look at the at the complex nature of that manufacturing, it's something that we would like to have more control over. So we're, we're actually uh, renovating a, a manufacturing suite just down the road mm-hmm. in the Research Triangle Park now uh, and hope to bring on a full manufacturing team uh, by late this year, which also adds to that head count. Sure. Um, and then also in gene therapy. We've mm-hmm. got a number of studies, uh, none, of the, none of which are far as far as the cell therapy, but uh, we're, we're collecting large animal data now on five or six uh, genetic diseases that we hope to use to pick our lead and back up uh, in, in short order and get moving on those very, very quickly so that we can – Uh, get those into patients that are are sorely in need of treatment in the next few years.
0: That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the culture here at Precision. What's important to, as you call them, precisioneers? I think that's the name you employees refer to themselves by. Is that really actually used? I started on the website. Do people actually use that term? We do. uh, It's precisioneers. People love being a precisioneer. All right. right. That's great. Um, What's important to them, the precisioneers, about the way people work, the culture here? How would you describe that? So an important thing to know about the company
1: um, is if you were to look at the founders and look at the folks that have been here for a while, there's not a lot of expertise outside of precision biosciences. Our CEO, this is his first time being a CEO. Our CSO, this is his first time being a CSO. Uh, I have never worked in biotech before. This is my first and only job in biotech.
0: And your first HR job. And my first (laughs) HR job.
1: Uh, and, And so what I guess I'm trying to communicate is we didn't have a lot of understanding of what we should be doing. We couldn't say, oh, when I was at GSK, this is how we did it. Or, well, at Novartis, this is how we did it. So we largely built a company that we wanted to work for. And and that's what people love about being here is we have built this company really from scratch in our image of what we think an awesome biotech company should be. Um, At its core, we do have five core values that we we determined, gosh, probably 10 years ago at this point. I remember doing the exercise because it seemed so dumb to me. There were, you know, eight of us around a table. We knew each other very intimately. We worked ninety hours a week together, and we decided to come up with core values. Um, who I, who, who cares, came up with this
0: idea first of all to do
1: this? Like, uh, how did this happen? This was our former chief operating officer who started yeah. one month after me. So another another old timer. And right. He came with this idea. We so need we to do find this. core values. Okay. And. and Pre-HR Mike Nicholson thought, this is the dumbest thing we could possibly be doing. Um, in, in retrospect, I think it was actually genius because it, it, it did a couple of things. One, we agreed they were not going to be aspirational. We weren't going to say, this is the company we want to be. These are values we want to have. These are these are values that mean something to us. And two, we, we haven't forgotten about them. We keep them front and center. And, and really, we view those values as the, the core, the non-negotiable things about our culture. They're easy. It's respect, accountability, adaptability, perseverance and innovation. I always lead off with respect because I think that's at its core what what we're about is recognizing that we're, we're pushing the envelope. I mean there there haven't been companies doing what we're trying to do. So we have to respect the fact that everybody that that joins this team that wants to be a precisioneer is all in and and they want to contribute. And and we have to respect that regardless of what your title is, where your position is, you know, who's to say who's not going to have the the best best idea for how to proceed next. Mm-hmm. So it begins from a place of, of utmost mutual respect for each other, recognizing that we are all here with the same vision to use this amazing tool we have to cure people of some really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. The rest comes from there.
0: That's great. And as you grow, um, I'm sure a concern of yours is maintaining that because you have a growth wave coming up now. Um, how have you maintained it as you've grown? And what are you thinking about how do you maintain that culture? Or maybe it slightly evolves. Certainly those principles won't change, but there might be some parts of the culture that evolve as you get larger. So how are you thinking about growth in your culture?
1: Yeah, and I think uh, what's most important is to not fool ourselves that it's not going to change. Uh, you know, We're viewing it very much with open eyes that uh, of course we have to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as we hit certain milestones, external pressures change. You know, all of a sudden, OSHA, who didn't know we existed 10 years ago, very much knows we exist and other, other you know, governing bodies. So there are things that we have to do as a company uh, in the name of corporate maturity. Mm-hmm. But, but I think you nailed it, right? The, the core values are, are called core values for a reason because that's at, at, its, at its centerpiece. And so what we've tried to do is be very intentional about identifying things that are non-negotiable, that, that are things that we won't change, mm-hmm. that are things like creativity that are things like being a, a data-based company, mm-hmm. very, very science-driven. We, we won't let necessarily the business drive decisions. Mm-hmm. We're, very, we're built by scientists, made by scientists, run by scientists. Um, so we, we let the data drive how we do things. Really, in terms of growth and making sure we don't lose those non-negotiables, it's about constant communication. It's about constant reminder to new people. It's mm-hmm. about bringing them in the right way so that they understand from day one what we're about. And, and making it clear that, yes, these are non-negotiable.
0: How do you do that? Do you have a process?
1: Uh, we do. We have a, a, an onboarding process that is continually evolving. It mm. used to be, uh, you know, in, in smaller precision, it was as fast as possible. <laughs> you know, here's the, here's the crap you have to sign. <laughs> now get to work. Um, now it's a, a little more robust. And in fact, uh, I have a dedicated portion. I've got one hour um, that, that I go through the company history. And I, I share some of the stories. I share the day we came up with the values. Mm-hmm. I share the day we couldn't make payroll in 2014 and had to furlough the entire company only to find that everybody came back to work the next day wow. because they wanted to come. Wow. I, I share some of the adversity we've been through. Uh, we, were, we were sued by a much, much larger competitor very, very early on our days. And we, we fought back and really went through a lot, uh, a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears to, to get through that. And I share that experience with them so that they understand what's driving the founders and and what we've done to get us to this point. Mm -hmm. Once we've established that baseline, it it really becomes, and here's how we operate. Mm -hmm. At at its forefront, these are the five core values. When questions arise, how should I proceed here? Lean back on those values, number one. Mm -hmm. From the HR perspective, this is why respect is so important. All right, we've got a a disagreement between a manager and a report. All right, we have to make sure that we are starting from a place of respect there. This is not a culture that relies too heavily on positions. You know, we, we don't look at the org chart to solve problems. No one would ever say, well, because I am chief people officer, I'm going to handle it this way. Uh-huh. It's always very much through the lens of, okay, we're both precisioneers. Where are we trying to get, what can we do to get there?
0: Excellent. You know, I, I follow somebody on LinkedIn, her name's Siobhan McHale, and she's the CHRO of Dulux Out. In Australia, actually. And I think she writes really well about culture. And one of the things she writes emphatically about is that you can measure culture inside an organization. And uh, it sounds like you're doing some of those things already. I just wanted to get your reaction to that. What What do you think about that? Can you measure culture? So I think that's clearly the way of the future. Um, I, I would say right now that's
1: something we're not doing a lot of we've, we've kind of done some of the standard surveys mm-hmm. uh, to get a pulse on things like I,
0: engagement I type is, stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well, that is it. That's a measure. For sure. sure.
1: Sure. It's a measure. I guess I'm thinking kind of the, the next level of, right. of real people data analytics, right. which I'd love to get in. I know Andy Porter is, is big on this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, a Great talk. And, and uh, so I, I think that's clearly the way of the future. I, I think what's most important about that is understanding why you're collecting the data and then what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you're just collecting it, and following it, it doesn't. That doesn't really help um, I think if, if you're using it appropriately and, and, and even then you have to be careful about how you're using it I mean we when we look at some of the survey results we have to think about what initiatives might come out of that based on just because people in the company want it or because they want it and it's in the best interest of the company right right so I think for for me collecting the data, and we're not doing a great job of it, but but could be the easy part. It's much more about then what do you do with them. Mm-hmm. But from a from a science-based company, I, I feel like that's just an incredible tool to have because it also reinforces the way we do
0: things. Right. You could measure creativity potentially or innovation and things like yeah, that. So, yeah, absolutely. Great.
1: And, and it also becomes more and more important as, as we grow. Um, you know, when, when you've got a 25-person company, you've got a good feel on how everybody operates. And you don't necessarily need that, that data collection because you see it every day. But at 150, 200 people, you lose that, that pulse. And so I feel like if you're not putting some thought into how you actually collect data and what you do with it, you're going to be missing out a lot.
0: So, Mike, now that you're growing, you go into hundreds of employees uh, quickly here. How does somebody that's never led HR build an HR team? I imagine you have staff now. Can you tell us a little bit about how you have built your team and what you're doing with that team?
1: Uh, I do. I have a great team. Uh, I've got a director of HR. I've got two generalists and uh, two recruiters. We just hired our second one because of, of the growth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way I've done it was, number one, by being brutally honest with them when I was interviewing and recruiting and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I've got some great ideas. Can you help me? Um, and, and being very clear you know what, what my expectations were. And, and I, I remember in, in the interview I had with, uh, with Cindy Doyle, our, our director, I told her, I said, what I'm looking for is for someone that when I say, I hate our handbook, I want to set it on fire. She says, great, I've got a lighter and I've got some ideas. <laughs> so, you know, by, by, by being very clear with the expectation, um, I was able to find people that get it. They understand the vision. They understand that we're trying an experiment here um, and, and they want to be a part of it. And they understand that uh, their experiences is, is absolutely crucial uh, because there's some things that, of course, just you know, kind of have to be done. Um, but but understanding that the experiences they bring are tools and techniques, just like in lab, that we can pick and choose from to solve the questions uh, in, in the best way that's right for the company.
0: So you look at HR as a, as a scientist, and you want your HR people to do that as well? HR. I do. Yeah. I
1: do. I, I, I view uh, HR initiatives very much the same way I, I did running research groups, which is, here's the problem we're trying to solve, or here's the product we're trying to make. Let's take an a, an inventory of the tools and techniques we have. And in the case of HR, it's, it's uh, you know, our past experiences, it's best practices, it's federal and state guidelines. Let's take these tools, take these techniques, and figure out how to use them in the best way to get us where we're going. And rarely is the answer, well, last time I did it this way. Just like in lab, no one would ever say, well, six years ago I tried this technique and it worked. That You know, you, you might as well... I mean, you're, you're working in, with ancient technology at that right, point. Right, right. Um, so, it solves a different problem, Absolutely. Right? So I, I challenge the HR team all the time to, all right, how can we creatively solve this problem? Let's take our experience, take our, our past roles and figure out what, what's going to work here.
0: We talked a little bit before I, I started off talking about the connection between Raleigh and Boston. Uh, what's the, uh, the ecosystem here with regard to biotech talent here in the Raleigh market? Can you talk a little bit about what's going on here, why it's exciting to be in this market right now, in this area? In this industry,
1: yeah. Um, so I, I will preface this by saying that that Precision is actually in Durham.
0: Oh yes, I meant RTP. I, Understood. I mean, saying, yeah, yeah. So Durham I, is
1: very fiercely protective of being Durham and not Raleigh. Yes, so, and it's, it's a very um,
0: different feel here. Obviously, we're in. For all our, the brick buildings, all the yes. old tobacco buildings that we're sitting in right here. So, so I, apologize. No, I apologize. I apologize. Well, for, for our Durham <laughs> audiences, I had to say something. On it. And, and actually,
1: as a Durham native, I also had to had to speak up uh, yeah. t- t- on Durham. Right. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great market. And, and you touched on this briefly. I think there are a lot of parallels with Boston, the um, Cambridge area. We've got uh, a number of great institutions, academic institutions, between Duke, uh, UNC, North Carolina State. Sure. The smaller ones, North Carolina Central right around the corner from us. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got this in, incredible collection of, uh, of great academic minds. Mm-hmm. There have also been, at the Research Triangle Park, a, a number of large pharma over the year that have spun out a lot of small biotechs um, uh, generally. So between spin-outs from universities and, uh, and spin-outs from some larger pharma, and of course the, the large pharma themselves, mm-hmm. uh, we've got a, a really rich environment um, with some great scientists and engineers and, and problem solvers um, that have a lot of interest in doing some great, great work. Excellent. It's interesting. This has become more and more of a hotbed, I think, for biotech. Uh, a lot of which I think is comes down to quality of life. You know, what, what we do have here that uh, that Boston can't offer is is much more pleasant winters, uh, <laughs> yes. much shorter commutes, you know, more affordable real estate. Um, you know, the, the price we pay for our beautiful restored tobacco warehouse per square foot is uh, is a fraction of what it costs in Kendall
0: Square. Yes, Kendall Square is out of sight right now. Mike, we deliver this podcast in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association, and they have a young professionals group within it. And we always ask a question on the podcast to our guests from a member of NERA IP. And this question is, do you still see there's a strong need in HR for some of the traditional training that, you know, like the SHRM certifications and the PHR? Just what's your comment and your answer to that? Near yep. a YP question.
1: I, I think that's a great question and I, I think that classical training and those certifications are incredibly valuable. Um, as I reflect on my team as I told you I, I needed people that could help me actually accomplish the things we want to do and without enough of that uh, that, that classical training if you will, somebody like me is is going to get into trouble um, <laughs> I it's interesting I've, I've actually considered should I be sure I'm certified and, and I think for me probably not because you know what what I do bring is, Out of the box thinking that that doesn't necessarily align to things that, you know, are are best practices, Mm -hmm. um, or even necessarily compliant. So, so having people that, that know that and can say, great idea. Here are the parameters in which we need to work. Mm-hmm. Is, is of great importance. You know, at Precision, we're very interested in professional development. Um, we know that's important for people's uh, career development. So, even folks on my team that don't have SHRM certification, uh, I'm encouraging them to, to go ahead and do that, um, to, to pick that up, to bring in that expertise and, and have that's that great. development. Plus, be plugged into a network of other people um, that have that experience. All professional as well. development, yeah, right? Absolutely.
0: And I think about your role, and it must, uh, must bring some great advantages as you're leading the HR function, and I'm just thinking about the advantages you have over your peers that are CHROs that haven't had the science background. Like when you're in discussions, you can stay right up to speed with the scientific conversation that's going on. Can you talk about how it's helped you in this function, being a scientist, having sat in their chairs as well? So
1: sometimes I feel a little guilty about it. And at Leap HR I, well I do at, at LeapHR, HR we, we talked about this in a roundtable session that I led. I would say that the biggest advantage I had was instant credibility with the rest of the leadership team and the company. right it, it, I never had to worry about HR seeing a, as a bolt-on function because they knew me they knew how I'd contributed to the team. they knew how I would continue. So from from the moment I took the role, nobody ever thought, oh here comes HR. It was always oh here comes Mike, this is going to be neat. So, so the fact that I've had instant credibility is very, very helpful. Then, yeah, practically, day-to-day conversations are, are very different. You know, when we're having, uh, you know, for instance, this year we did a, a compensation analysis. It's one thing to have those numbers and to have, you know, done compensation projects at other companies, but to have occupied several seats within there and, <laughs> and, and hired people along those lines, the conversation is just very, very different. Right. You know, when we're talking with hiring managers about the difference between a research associate and a scientist, I know it firsthand, right. and, and I can I can talk about it very very differently. I, I think the other advantage I have in terms of, of really integrating the HR strategy with the business strategy is is not having to play catch up there. That that not only am I aware of the business strategy and the scientific strategy, I'm still contributing to that as well as the HR. So it, it's even so it's, it's it's beyond partnering yeah. with and, and really truly merging. And and to be fair, I'm, I'm grateful for our CEO to to understand the importance of that. And still having me on the leadership team and still having me in scientific discussions and, and you know, utilizing that background mm. through the lens of how does this apply to our people strategy.
0: Right. Are there
1: any disadvantages to not being a traditional HR person? Absolutely. Um, and, and truthfully, I think one of the, the biggest disadvantages is the, the exact counterpoint to credibility. Um, you know, Because people know me and they, they know what I've done from a scientific point, they also still sort of see me where I was. So when it's useful for me to, to have instant credibility, it's great. When I have to deliver news or you know a, a policy or something that, that doesn't necessarily resonate with the scientific staff, they then quickly revert. But you're Mike. You used to be at the bench with us. So I think for, for some people, particularly folks that have been here for a long time, it it can be challenging at times to see me in a different role, uh, so it's kind of the flip side of the same coin. Right. It, it's an instant in, but then when Sometimes, I use that to do something that they're not necessarily 100 percent on board with,
0: it's very disorienting. I can see I could see that being a challenge at times, but overall, it's, it's obviously very great for the company and you, Mike. One of the questions I like to ask on the podcast is, if you could write a letter of advice to your 30 year old self, what would you write?
1: Uh, I, I think for me. What I would tell 30 year old Mike w- would be to get more comfortable in my own skin faster i I, I feel like and, and not just 30 year old Mike but maybe maybe anybody earlier in their career mm. you know there's there's this tentativeness about really just owning who I am how I can contribute what what I can bring to the table and some of it's just uncertainty some of it is fear some of it is not having the voice to do so so I think I would, I would tell myself own it you mm-hmm. are who you are be that mm-hmm. and it's going to be okay Ah, good advice.
0: Well, now we have the lighter questions of the podcast, Mike. We try to end on a a light note. Well, we talked about performances early on. You were in the music business, and uh, I asked this question, too. And I was wondering, uh, what's the best performance you've ever seen? Music, sports, a show? What comes to mind?
1: There's a classical guitar player named Norbert Kraft that I saw in maybe 1993, 94, a long time ago. And I still think about his performance almost every week. Um, every he, week, I, I, he must have been great. Well, and, and the, the irony is the reason I remember it is because he messed up. Oh. He, I think it was his last piece. There's a, I think it was a A etude. This kind of flamenco inspired uh, guitar, blazing fast, and and he was playing it absolutely breakneck speed. It was like when you see little kids running and you know they're they're not going to, but their <laughs> limbs are going to go. Everybody in the concert was on the edge of their seat because he was playing it so fast, and it was exhilarating, and it ends with this long run to this huge chord at the end, and I mean, just exhilarating, and he missed the chord. He was was half a step too high on everything, and he just kind of smiled a little bit and readjusted his hand to play the right chord. But, but what stands out to me is that guy went for it. Yeah. I mean, he went for it. Total he, commitment. He yeah. totally all in. Yeah. And he missed, yeah. but it was spectacular. <laughs> I, I almost liked it better that way. And I, I think about that so often because I, I, I feel like that's, you talk about advice for your 30-year-old. Go for it. Right. Get all in there. Well, he certainly was. And wants. you might miss every once in a while. Right. But it's certainly going to be a performance nobody's going to miss. Wow,
0: that's a great story. If you could go to dinner with any living person, who would it be?
1: I might have given this away earlier when I referred to the movie Rampage. I am a huge fan of The Rock, and I would love to eat dinner (laughs) with The Rock.
0: What do you think that conversation would be like?
1: <laughs> I think it'd be mostly about how much he was actually eating. I don't know if you, if you follow him. But uh, he, he, just, he strikes me as one of those guys that just brings an outrageous amount of positivity yeah. and hard work and, and dedication and humor. I just i, yeah. I, I love that
0: guy. Uh, that's I'm awesome. A, I'm a fan. <laughs> Mike, it's been so great having you on the podcast. Thanks for having me here in Durham, not Raleigh. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks for coming. All right. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to
1: keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.